Opinions expressed by this podcast are not representative of our workplaces, families, friends, enemies, pets, or other entities that may associate with us, despite our opinions. Get social with the Unelectables. You can find us on Twitter at Unelectables. And on Facebook at Unelectables Pod. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are back. We are back. I am Joey Oberhoffner, the Enlightened Savage. And I'm Kim Schmidt, the Unenlightened Savage. Well, at least one of those two terms is correct. Now, Kirk, it has been two weeks since we last recorded. We are now 59 days away from the federal election. That is a date that is set in stone. We're going to dive right into it. There's nothing that can take us off the rails. It is the 21st of October. That is when we're going to the polls. Are you ready? As long as that's when we actually go to the polls. Yeah, sure. Okay, Kirk, we have a fixed election date. Don't screw with me. It's October the 21st is the election. Are I you ready? I just remind you that the fixed election date is not really enforceable. Okay, you're going to need to explain that a little bit more. So, if uh, we remember, we talked about this from the provincial election standpoint as well. There's really no way to enforce a fixed election day. So, it's there, and it's legislated, and parties should be following it, but there's not really any type of uh, thing that can happen should it not happen. In the end, the governor general still needs to, to effectively... Uh, close the government and the writ needs to be dropped. So we're, we still have the old existing rules that a writ period can be a certain length and it can technically be up to five years after the election. But most likely it's going to be October 21st and then that's going to mean that the writ's going to drop anywhere between September 1st and September 15th. Okay. Um... Great. Well, we're recording this on August the 23rd. We typically record every couple of weeks. So what you're telling me is there's a good chance that the next time we record, we might actually officially be into election season. That's correct. Oh, goody. Oh, my. Thank you, Captain Sulu. So we've got a federal election coming up. We've got a lot of stuff to talk about today, both federally and provincially. Um, we just dove right in there with the uh, federal election period. Um, we've got that right around the corner. Uh, you should look for the blossoms of democracy on the boulevards and front lawns of your neighbors and neighborhoods uh, at any point here in the near future. Um, my understanding is that we've got a, almost all of the Conservative Party of Canada candidates have been nominated. Um, a shocking number of People's Party of Canada candidates have been nominated. Most of the Liberal Party uh, of Canada uh, candidates are nominated. And roughly half of the New Democratic candidates have been nominated. So uh, stay tuned for information on who you may get to vote for. Because, dear listener, as you no doubt need no reminder of whatsoever, Jagmeet Singh and Justin Trudeau 
and Andrew Scheer, and Elizabeth May, and Maxime Bernier, most likely are not going to be on your ballot. And certainly if one of them is, the others will not be. Because they are all running in different ridings. And you have to vote for a local candidate. You don't get to vote for a party. Sorry about your luck. I know you might think you're voting for a party, but as a matter of law, you're wrong. So there is that. Are you saying I can't vote directly for my prime minister? That's exactly what I'm saying, because this is not a republic. Just stand there and you're wrong. Listen, be wrong and get used to it. All right, just having a little fun back and forth there, ladies and gentlemen. If you need more information on how exactly that whole system works, there's a great series of articles uh, that you can find online on the House of Commons website about how Canadian democracy works, what the Westminster system is, and why it is that you cannot, in fact, vote for a political party. It's because, spoiler alert, according to the Constitution, there's no such thing. So... There's a there's a little spoiler for you. So well, and of we, course that, that would also be be why um, when there was uh, Walter Wakula and a number of other people versus the Conservative Party of Canada a number of years ago when it came to the Calgary West nomination of Rob Anders, mm -hmm. um, the judge effectively ruled that uh, basically as long as there was an internal arbitration process within the the private club of a party. Uh, the, the government, government couldn't, couldn't interfere at that point. point. So, so I think uh, there was a disqualification and they went through the, the appeal process and, and things like that, but uh, they don't feel that that was done properly or they didn't feel that was done properly and effectively it was ruled that they're a private club, so the government can't do anything. So uh, just a reminder that you know political parties, they're governed by their own constitution and things like that, but they are private clubs. Right, so they may as well be your local Lions Club, or your bowling team, for all that matters. Um, they, they have their own rules, and the government doesn't typically get involved as long as they're following whatever rules they have set. And they're free to change their rules whenever they like as well. So another thing to keep an eye on. Um, so let's talk about this federal election coming up, Kirk, because we had an absolute bombshell drop since we recorded last in the ethics commissioner's report into the SNC-Lavalin affair. Right, so this is the first time that a sitting prime minister has been uh, accused of breaking or, or making ethical violations. And not just accused, but actually has been ruled to have sure. had ethical breaches. That's right. So it's, it's not a court of law, it's, it's through the ethics commission and through investigation through that process. Okay, so when I read on Twitter that Justin Trudeau is about to go to prison, I should not believe that? Yeah, that's probably not true. Although, you know, you don't know what he does in his personal life. Maybe maybe he is going to prison, but, but certainly not for ethics violations. Well, I know he's a Star Wars fan, and that's good enough for me. Okay, so as we talk about the uh, blowback from the SNC-Lavalin affair, we really have to then stop and look at what those ethical breaches were. And in effect, what the ethics commissioner was saying is that the prime minister and his surrogates and the prime minister's office were inappropriately uh, pressuring the, at the time, um, uh, minister of justice and attorney general to give a essentially a sweetheart deal or a, a non-prosecution agreement, for lack of a better term, 
uh, to this large construction company that's based in Quebec because if they in fact went to court and were found guilty of what they were accused of, uh, they would be ineligible to bid on government contracts for a period of time, I think it's 10 years. And so Justin Trudeau and or his surrogates said, well, there's a provincial election coming up in Quebec. We'd sure like the Liberals to do well. By the way, you remember that the Prime Minister is, of course, a federal member of Parliament for a riding in Quebec. We would sure hate to lose all those Quebec jobs. And so this, uh, this is all what was... All 9,000 of them. All 9,000 of them. So this is what was communicated to the Minister of Justice at the time, uh, Judy Wilson-Raybould. And the ethics commissioner says, uh, yeah, no, that's no good. You, you can't go and do things like that. So, of course, the opposition parties started screaming from high heavens that this makes Justin Trudeau the most corrupt politician in the history of politics. And speaking of political corruption, we're going to talk provincial politics next. But before we get there... <laughs> Um, so Justin Trudeau is just absolutely terrible. The people of Canada are going to rise up with pitchforks and torches and demand that this crooked politician be driven out of office. And public opinion polls have come out since. And Kirk, they are as predictable as the day is long. The opposition politicians were 100% correct. Justin Trudeau has to go. Yes? Sure, if there's a massive margin of error on those. But uh, right now, it's showing pretty neck and neck in terms of the, the polling. Okay, so essentially, looking at these polls, the needle has barely moved at all. It has moved within the margin of error, essentially. Right. So, so, which is really interesting, right? Because when you look at, say, Alberta, where um, the NDP were seen as, as or, or at least described as poor stewards of the province... Um, you know, effectively, they're, you know, any little thing that, that the NDP had on them uh, would bring them down, mm -hmm. as opposed to federally, where, you know, liberals are, are kind of like Teflon, right? Like nothing is sticking. Um, and, and some of that may have to do with uh, message control, right? So the liberals use this opportunity to uh, to fire a few shots back at the Conservative Party and, and might have been able to change some of the narrative. Um, and some of it might just be that there isn't quite the appetite for change or quite the uh, quite the worry that, you know, the world's going to end if the Liberals continue to stay in power that there was, for example, in Alberta with the NDP. Could some of it as well be just the fact that, I mean, it's still summer. I mean, we're in the dog days of summer now, but essentially, I mean, it's still late August. People are still thinking about getting those last few weekends in at the lake. They're still thinking about going back to school shopping for the kids. University students are still eyeing their inbox, uh, hoping like heck that the Rutherford scholarship's gonna come through. Um, and people just aren't really paying attention. I mean, I go to Tim Hortons quite frequently, as my waistline can attest. And I got to tell you, I hear more people talking about American politics than Canadian politics, at least in the summertime. There's nothing happening there. No, absolutely not. Uh, they've got a stable genius in charge, and uh, everything How is going How much is Greenland going for, by the way? <laughs> um, apparently, it's going for nothing. 
But anyways, back to back to Canadian politics. Yeah, it's it's not. This is not the key time for attacks to happen, right? Mm-hmm. This is not when you bring out your good material. So the ethics commission having its ruling in August, it might it might get some legs as mm-hmm. the campaign goes on for sure. And and we've certainly seen cases where you know something early in the campaign continues to build like a like a snowball downhill but right now it doesn't look like it's having an effect or it doesn't look like it's had an immediate effect right now when you talk about politics as as theater or as entertainment uh right because the things that we see aren't the things that are necessarily really happening you and i both know that as well as anybody the real change the real the real push the real agenda that is something that is discussed in hushed tones behind closed doors. Uh, it's not what's discussed on the six o'clock news when you're talking to Rosemary Barton, right? So, um, in, in musical terms, or in uh, let's let's use pro wrestling as an example, right? The the truly important stuff that you have going on in your wrestling show does not go on first. Right, you have these matches that are called curtain jerkers. Right, they're the people who just come out and warm up the crowd. Right, or you go to a stand-up comedy show; it's the same thing. Right, the first person who gets up on stage and speaks is not your headliner; it's just the material to sort of loosen people up and let them know, hey, you know what? It's okay to laugh. It's okay to to cheer. It's okay to do whatever. You know, and and that's. After that point, you start to get into the real heavy material. You start to get into the the really talented performers. Um, So if a political party actually knows what they're talking about, and we're 59 days away from a federal election, and they're launching an attack against another party's leader at this stage, is it safe to assume that they are not leading with their best material, and they've probably got some really good stuff still uh, in the bag that they're waiting for the right time to unload? Yes, I would, Kent. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's one of those things where uh, if you release that information early, you might be able to to, for lack of a better term, you know, prime the engine. Uh, but it's not generally what you're going to to lead with as as you know the big piece, as, as you said, the headliner, right? So the the you know, and and for the conservatives, uh, there's a bit of a timing thing because this isn't really their attack. Right, we have to remember that that the ethics piece is really um, a federal commission that that released its report. But certainly, uh, in some of the other things that are happening, we talked about this last time about the hundred days of Trudeau. Uh, they're not going to put out the hard hitting, horrible pieces yet. Right now, it's just kind of like poking and prodding, and and certainly having seen some of them, uh, there's certainly a few things of you know why is this on here. Uh, as the 100 Days of Trudeau, and it's because right now there's very few people paying attention. These these are about wedges right now. It's about really defining your solid base, and then they're going to just slowly build uh, until it's it's uh, the big things close to the end, right? You, you don't want to do it right at the end because, of course, there's advanced voting and things like that, but it's going to be close to the end. And so if if people are watching anything that's coming out via social media or... Uh, or any other attack, this isn't the good stuff yet. This isn't the stuff where uh, they're going to go for for um, for the throat. It's it's you know really these are like the death of a thousand cuts type uh, type attacks. 
This is the appetizer, essentially. Absolutely. Okay. Good stuff. So then given that, and given that this uh, ethics commissioner investigation was really the sort of Damocles hanging over the head of the liberals as far as they were concerned going into this election, they wanted the report out as early as they could so they could do damage control on it. They were hoping like hell that it wouldn't come back and say that, you know, uh, Justin Trudeau was, you know, passing cash back and forth to people in order to sabotage Jody Wilson-Raybould or anything like that. Um, uh, now that this is out of the way, and given the fact that it hasn't really moved the needle, is there any advantage to having, if you're the liberals and you're in a majority government situation, to say, you know what, ah, let's, let's pull the trigger on this election a little early. Let's, let's do this thing while our guy is still Teflon. Let's do this, um, or at least get the ball rolling. Of course, you mentioned there's a, a minimum length of the campaign. They can't say, okay, everybody's voting tomorrow. But um, is there an advantage to going sooner rather than waiting until the 21st of October? Well, certainly the, you know, without the fixed election date piece, and, and the problem is, you know, how do you reconcile how people will take that if you go outside the fixed election day? But let's say, let's say they decide to go against the fixed election day. Let's say that all things were equal and, and it didn't actually matter for any votes. Um, I mean, that would be the right strategy, right? Like, wait until the blowback happens to try to get a feel for how, you know, should, should you go earlier, should you go later? Um, Certainly, Certainly, like back, back in the, the, the Caetera, this would have been, been yeah, either go now or go in the spring, right? Either either do it now when, when you know that support is not as horrible as it could be and, and you can build on it, or wait until you do a budget and, and have all of that piece there. So certainly they could go early, and of course with the minimum 36-day period for a federal election, that would put us, let's say it happened tomorrow, let's say the writ was dropped tomorrow, uh, we could have an election as early as the end of September. The question, though, that I would seriously have is, how bad is the SNC-Lavalin thing going to get? And is it going to get any worse? Because certainly the Conservatives will make sure that it is forefront in the news as often as possible. So they're going to do anything they can to make sure that people are still talking about SNC-Lavalin the moment that September hits, the moment that people are starting to pay attention to, to the election. They're going to make sure it's part of the narrative during the election. And you can bet that they are going to hammer on it in the debates. So, and, and it, would, it honestly would not surprise me if, you know, every time some question was asked, um, Andrew Shear will go, you know, you know, like, like, what do you think about about tougher laws? And you know, yeah, we're for tougher laws. You know, speaking of of laws, we should talk about the prime minister and the ethics thing, right? Like, there, it wouldn't surprise me if there are constant pivots to that. And the question is how much that will resonate when people are starting to pay attention again. So I'm not sure that there's a lot of strategic advantage right now for the Liberals to go early. Uh, to, to call it early, they may, you know, in, in the end, they're probably going to want to see what happens in September. Um, and then they're in the, the period that they have to call the red anyway. So, I don't know. It's, for, for me, I don't think it's something that they will, they will actually do or think about doing simply because there's, there's almost not enough information yet. Well, and it's also true that a political party takes on the personality of its leader. 
and the Chrétien liberals, I mean, Jean Chrétien was a political street fighter. I mean, he wasn't just the prime minister who choked out an intruder in his own home. He was also uh, somebody who was used to getting as down and dirty as you needed to get in order to crush your opponent. Uh, in that way, he's not entirely dissimilar from Alberta's current premier, Jason Kenney. And so, whereas the Chrétien liberals, uh, even before the introduction of a fixed election date law, would look at the pros and cons based on where are we most likely to destroy our opponents when we go for an election. I think that Justin Trudeau and his Liberal Party of 2019 are trying to walk a bit more of a straight and narrow, which is ironic considering the conversation we just had about the ethical conflict. Absolutely. And, you know, speaking of getting down and dirty, let's not forget that uh, Justin Trudeau did take on Brazo. Um, and he did defeat Brazo right. in that match, which I remember watching, and the commentators from Sun News looked like someone had just backed over their pet dog. <laughs> it was delicious. Uh, whether you were cheering for Brazo or Trudeau in that fight, just watching the sheer disappointment on the faces of those commentators was worth the price of admission in and of itself. Speaking of sheer disappointment. Oh, hey. Hey, master of the segue right here. Uh, Andrew Shear has been catching some real flack over the past few days about his position on same-sex marriage. Uh, same-sex marriage and also uh, equal rights for uh, uh, people who identify as transsexual. Um, he's, he's been catching it from all sides. Um, there was some discussion about the source of this broadside because the person who actually brought this into the mainstream conversation this week was somebody who was, according to the Twitter machine, somebody who actively voted against same-sex marriage in 2005, I believe is what I read uh, the first time this came up on Twitter. Kirk, tell me about how accurate Twitter is 100% of the time. 100% uh, of the time, Twitter is inaccurate. <laughs> now that said, um, so so one of the individuals who uh, who we have tremendous respect for in the the uh, political realm is Paul Ferry, um, who did tweet that uh, Ralph Goodale, who was the person who who put out this uh, this video of Sheer arguing against same-sex marriage, um, and and keep in mind the the argument was about the ability to. Uh, to procreate. Um, it was and it wasn't. Yeah, it was a really poorly written speech that he gave because but, he started it by saying that the fundamental job of a married couple is to raise a child, which of course same-sex couples can do. That's right. But then he goes on to talk about how they can't make babies. Um, and then there was something about tails and dog legs and that, you know, I stopped listening. Yes. Um, but, but, Back to back to Ralph Goodale, uh, Minister Good, Goodale. Um, so Paul Ferry did tweet that uh, Mr. Goodale did actually vote in favor of same-sex marriage in, and did post the link to Hansard, uh, Hansard being the, the official record of the House of Commons. Uh, so, so certainly the one that, that Paul linked to, um, he voted for. Now, keep in mind, in the political arena, I have seen times where people have voted against a bill in, say, first reading, 
or voted against amendments or voted for things. I mean, um, the Alberta senator, and why is her name escaping me right now? Um, Paula Simons. Paula Simons. Uh, she got uh, she got lambasted all over Twitter because she voted for uh, Bill 63, mm -hmm. uh, right? And and she actually didn't. She voted for some amendments um, and then ended up voting against. Um, and Paula so, also a huge Star Trek fan. So shout out to Paula. So so I think I think the thing is you know as much as uh, Paul found the one piece where he voted for. Uh, or where, where Minister uh, Minister Goodell voted for. Uh, keep in mind, there are quite a quite a few times where you know I haven't gone through every vote that Minister Goodell did, and, and there might have been a time where they voted uh, where he voted against some component of it, or uh, on one of the readings of it for whatever reason, or a private member's bill, or a right. motion, and, or and so and and this this argument goes both sides, right? Like you can't just say that somebody voted against something. Uh, because they simply voted against uh, one of the readings or, or things like that, because there are different parts. Uh, but that said, so the one that he did link to, Minister Goodale did vote for, um, the Twitter machine seems to believe that there was a point where Minister Goodale voted against it. Uh, I haven't seen evidence to that, but of course that's, that's what's out there. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, versus um, Mr. Shear's speech, which which is on video and, and does show him um, talking against that. Now, um, since then, of course, the argument has been, um, is Shear actually for or against same-sex marriage? And the, the response that we are getting from conservatives is that he said that they will not reopen the debate. Right. He said it's the law of the land. We as a party understand that there are things that we are personally going to be opposed to, that we're trying to build a broad tent conservative coalition, though, so we're going to have to have a little good and take, which is all fine and good, but it doesn't actually answer the question that's being asked. It's like asking, what's your favorite flavor? And you say, I really don't mind the new people on the $10 bill. I mean, one doesn't have anything to do with the other. So the question that he was asked as recently as two years ago on television is, do you personally support same-sex marriage? And he had about a minute and a half to respond, and he chose not to respond directly to the question. He has not, since this, uh, since this video was re-released into the public sphere this week, he has not commented on the issue. But conservative proxies have commented uh, that, you know what, that was 2005, around the same time, uh, Barack Obama was opposed to same-sex marriage. Hillary Clinton voted against same-sex marriage. Paul Martin and Jean Chrétien voted against same-sex marriage. So people can evolve on issues, which is terrific. But the one thing that all of those aforementioned people did is they publicly changed their position and explained why their thinking had changed. And that's something that, I mean... Andrew Scheer won't even articulate what his position is, let alone explain why it's changed if it has. Is that just a mistake or is that a calculation in that he's trying not to lose votes that he really needs in Bible Belt of Ontario to try and win those seats in the, in the uh, area around the GTA? Well, I think this is where the PPC poses a threat, right? Because... The fact of the matter is, is the PPC does seem to be far more right, far more libertarian than 
than the Conservative Party. And so there, there definitely would be that fear that uh, because uh, because some of those far more right-wing people who used to be members of the Conservative Party, uh, because they've now moved moved on to this other party, that's where some of those, um, what might be seen as more extreme views, um, you know, in this case, I, I do think it's an extreme view, um, but where, where, you know, that might be placed. So yeah, it might be a calculation. Um, it might be a miscalculation. It might be a case where there is a belief that even if he personally does now believe that, you know what, same-sex marriage, fantastic, right? Um, rights for, for transgendered, great, right? Like he may believe that now, and, and it is very possible that he has changed his mind and, and believes that and is all for it. Um, and the miscalculation could be in the case of, uh, I don't want to publicly apologize and mea culpa, because uh, I'm worried that it will do X, Y, and Z. Whereas, you know, in other cases, as you mentioned, I mean, I have heard Preston Manning talk about things that he once believed and, and has changed his mind. I, you know, I've heard many politicians do this, many people do this, right? And, and you know, there's, there's the old adage that, you know, I changed my opinion because, you know, I, I learned more or, or was given better facts. And, you know, not, not, you know, fake news facts, but just, you know, got more information. Um, so, so it could be a case there. And, and really, until he says specifically that, uh, yes, he's for it, then it's, you know, we won't know if this is a calculation to try to keep the base or if this is a miscalculation on, um, on worrying about looking weak. Well, and there's an inherent risk here in that Andrew Scheer is not well known. I mean, people know Justin Trudeau, for better or for worse, he's been on their TV screens for the last four years, for the last six years, for the last eight years, ever since he was elected, he's been on TV, uh, but especially since he became prime minister. Uh, on the other side of it, Andrew Scheer served in the conservative government of Stephen Harper, but he was not a cabinet minister. He was the speaker, which means he wasn't giving speeches. He wasn't making statements about things that he believed. Uh, he wasn't um, voting on any bills. He was the referee of the House of Commons. So people didn't really know him when he came into this job. And to a large portion of the Canadian population, he's still an unknown quantity. And if he's not going out of his way to define himself to the Canadian public, the Liberals are going to be more than happy to define Andrew Scheer for the public. Right, and absolutely, and and you know, um, you know, and and I will recall, um, you know, a line from Hamilton about about Aaron Burr, uh, who you know tried, you know, in at least the musical version, uh, tried to to not show public opinion on a, on anything, and it's um, if you stand for nothing, Burr, what will you fall for? Now you going completely off track for a moment. You saw Hamilton in New York recently. I did, yes. And Bragging how rights. was it? How was it? Amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And if you get a chance to go, definitely go. How did you get tickets? Uh, so uh, there, you sign up um, with uh, the Hamilton website. And when they release tickets, what happens is they do a lottery. 
Uh, and so whoever gets you know picked in that lottery uh, gets the ability to buy, basically gets first first crack at buying tickets. So uh, we ended up going the August long weekend because it's not a holiday in the United States. So we figured it would be a good opportunity to go and there wouldn't be as much travel there as there might be some other long weekend in the States. So yeah, that's that's what we did. So so we paid, you know, like normal New York theater prices as opposed to inflated resold ticket prices. Which... That's great. What other shows did you see while you were there? Uh, saw Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, uh, which was the most amazing stage show I've ever seen. That's great. And what's your house? Uh, Slytherin, of course. Okay, so Kirk is a Slytherin. Sorry, folks. <laughs> anyway, back, you we know. can't all be Hufflepuffs. So back to the Conservative Party. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now who's doing segues? All right. Um, but yeah, so so uh, this piece. Now, you know, Stephen Carter made a really good point on Twitter, and, and we've, we've alluded to this as well. And it is if, if Goodale's, you know, re-releasing of... of of that video is an attack, which obviously it is. Uh, given what timing it is, being midsummer, or well, mid-August, and being outside of the electoral writ period and so far away from the election, uh, the question is, what else do they have? Because because it would have been incredibly poor strategy to release that now and not have anything else to go on later. Right. Now, of course, there is um, a, a vagary of Canadian law, and I'm not a lawyer. Um, I've known some lawyers in my time, and I have some fantastic lawyer jokes, but I believe this is still the case. A recording that's made, a surveillance-style recording that's made in Canada is legal as long as one person involved in the conversation knows that it's being made. So that, that I'm not sure, but but okay. certainly in terms of the video, shouldn't that have just been House of Commons video? Well, that was. But what leads me to bring that point oh, up I is, uh, I mean, what really torpedoed Mitt Romney's chances in the election against Barack Obama was his comment about how um, forty-eight percent of people are just takers, right? And that was a comment that was made off the cuff in a private setting with well-heeled donors, right? If there's video out there of uh, Andrew Shear or one of his main lieutenants talking that way or saying anything equally incendiary to a group of conservative donors or talking about any number of issues of skullduggery, um, you can bet that the Liberal Party of Canada is going to go to any lengths to obtain something that could be that damaging. So if you're releasing video that paints your opponent as a, a Luddite or a homophobe or insert your own term here, uh, and you're still 59 days out, what do you still have? I mean, it's right. gotta be something big or you've gotta be strategically useless. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it'll be interesting to see what comes out and and you know this is again battling that hundred days of Trudeau piece. Uh, in the end, it's going to be you know it's going to be interesting how we see strategy play out because you know even last time we were talking about uh, the Liberals are we're kind of focusing on on the good Trudeau um, and 
year in the Conservative Party were focusing more on, you know, transporter accident, evil Trudeau. Um, so, you know, it, for for Liberals to focus on Sheer, it's going to put limelight on Sheer, and, and the question will be whether that is good or bad. But to your point, they will define him if he doesn't define him. Right. So, Andrew, get on it, man. You're running out of time and the clock is ticking. Tempest Fugit. All right, Kirk, we've got a little bit of provincial politics to talk about because we haven't talked about provincial politics since I think it was May, actually. Um, we've got two big issues that I wanted to talk about. The first is, who wants to lead the Alberta party? Uh, I do. Stephen Mandel stepped down as leader of the Alberta party at the end of June. Of so I, I should, I should uh, add here, you know, as much as... Uh, as Joey and I kind of have, have a little bit of uh, back and forth before we record, um, and we don't really talk about that, uh, the fact of the matter is uh, I completely forgot that this had happened uh, to the point where we had to look up when it happened, and I don't know what I was doing that day. But apparently uh, I completely forgot that, that the uh, Alberta Party is leaderless. Which is understandable because I think to a point they've forgotten also. <laughs> Since the, and I say that only half-jokingly, since the provincial election, they have sent out two emails to their members at large. Now, the executive membership and the people who are leading the various constituency associations, they may be getting more communications. I don't know. But to the membership at large, they've gotten two emails. One was an email that basically said, hey, sorry, we've been out of touch lately, but we're really tired after the election. And the second one was, hey, um, so what do you guys think of the first 100 days of Jason Kenney? Why don't you fill out this survey? So that is uh, the amount of activity that's going on at Alberta Party headquarters right now. Now, given the fact that they, um, despite the fact that they increased their vote totals, despite the fact that they ran a full slate of candidates across the province, they were shut out of the election, um, understandably, uh, donations are slow to come in to a party that has zero seats. Uh, and a lot of the um, uh, human capital that gets behind a party during a campaign fizzles out afterwards, whether they win or lose, but especially if they lose, and even more so if they're shut out. So the Alberta party, which has a great brand, you know, they haven't really ticked anybody off, and they've got a wonderful name, Right? They're just sort of sitting there, leaderless, and to a point, because of the fact that they're leaderless, they're also rudderless. So the question becomes, are they sitting there waiting for the Conservatives to swoop in and take them so you can't use Alberta Party on a ballot the way you can't use Wildrose or Progressive Conservative anymore? Or are they waiting for the right person to come along and energize them? Are they waiting for their Peter Lougheed? Well, I mean, we know that Leadership races energize parties, usually, right? So if you have a good leadership race and it is quite public and you have good names going forward, I'm not talking about cases where, you know, it's just one name or a bunch of no names that nobody has heard of. Um, but when you have a good leadership race, it creates a lot of, uh, a lot of momentum. So, you know, there, to some degree, it's not a good time to, to have a leadership race for the Alberta Party. Um, if anything, like this was the time for them to 
to lay the groundwork. I mean, really, like fundraising, I know it's going to dry up, but really the, the focus on fundraising needs to happen the day after the election, regardless of how many seats you've got. So, and, and I know that uh, the Alberta Party has had problems with this, has, has had problems really establishing that infrastructure. Losing the leader in June did not help that what whatsoever. I mean, this is the time where you can quietly lay infrastructure. This is the time where you can where, where you can quietly kind of go back to the members and really start to talk about how to move forward and and what are you looking for? Not not what the first hundred days of Kenny were like, but as a party, how what do you want to see? How would we move forward? How how do we think about the next election? Um, so, to some degree, that did, you know, Mandel stepping down did the Alberta Party probably a disservice happening so early. The question is going to be who wants to lead it and, and whether it's or not it's going to attract uh, top talent, right? Right now, Jason Kenney seems to be riding high. Um, there's probably, you know, it, as you said, people are tired, uh, being shut out. I mean, that's, that's demoralizing. Um, so... It's, it's a really hard place for them. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they don't have any uh, caucus staff because they have no caucus. Right. Right. They don't have any party staff to speak of. Uh, I think they may still have uh, one, uh, the executive director, but they can't afford any. And, and the thing is, it's the Alberta party is choosing, to their credit, I think, the most difficult possible route to try and achieve change and, and, and eventually electoral success. It is so brutally difficult to get people to passionately advocate for centrism. I mean, it's it's like saying you want people to jump off of a cliff because they're so excited about tapioca pudding. It's, um, you know, we're not advocating for free daycare for everybody, and we're not advocating for massive tax cuts for corporations. We're advocating for eh, responsible environmental stewardship and and middle-of-the-road fiscal policy, and it's hard to get people really worked up about that and want to put their dollars and their hours into that cause. But I think that they're going about the timing the right way, at least, in that they didn't immediately call a leadership race. Sure. Yeah, not calling the leadership race right away is smart. Uh, Being leaderless, there will be a question of how long they can do that, and that that will probably be constitutional on their end more than anything. you know, but but they also have to be smart about the way that they do things, and they can't be. They really can't be the same party they were uh, when they could be snappy and and you know kind of you know kind of get the quick jabs in that they were a couple of years ago, uh, just because of of things that have happened and and you know where they're at like the. As I said, this is the time to rebuild. This is the time to start talking to people the way that they did when they first really changed the uh, changed what the Alberta Party was. Because we'll remember that the Alberta Party is actually a lot older than we like to think it is, because uh, they really changed mandate with discussions with Albertans and things like that. Um, but you know, like they're they're trying to get jabs in on things, and I saw one a few weeks ago, and it was it was a real like forehead slapper. Because they said something about getting or something about a deadline, and it was like of all the parties to attack the Kenny government on deadlines, maybe that's not what the Alberta party should be talking about just after the election, right? So 
you know, there's kind of a level of it worked for them at one point, the the snappy comebacks and things like that, and it probably will again. But you have no seats, you have no leader. Maybe lay low and see what kind of support you have internally before you really start trying to rile up the public to, as you said, uh, to centrism. Well, now is the time when they don't have a leader and when they don't have any public responsibilities to really do that soul searching. And I feel like if they were taking advantage of this time to speak to the entire membership at large and say, what do you want us to be? Let's talk about what your vision for this party is. And then we have an actual brand to sell the public and to sell potential leadership candidates. And let's talk about, you know, policies that we as party members want, because we are more than just the leader and a bunch of volunteers. We are the party and the leader serves us when we get one. Um, but that work needs to be happening. And at this point, uh, unless I'm not getting the emails, because I'm certainly supposed to be, that work is not happening. I get uh, I get membership uh, emails from all of the parties. Right. And, you know, it, we have to keep in mind, you know, there's certainly in the charitable sector, there's a lot of research into how, you, how often you should be contacting people. And, and some of it is, you know, up to, you know, once every six weeks. Right. And, and really, the, this is the time that you don't want to lose people, because what's going to happen is when the, the membership renewal comes, um, you know, that is a source of revenue. It's not a big source of revenue, but it's a source of revenue. And if you haven't really done the work to to keep your members, you know, to really show members, look, you've got a voice in what this party is going to look like in the next four years. You really you know, we really need you to to tell us. You know, why not conservatives? Why not uh, the liberals? Why not the NDP? Um, you know, why why should the Alberta party continue and survive? Uh, if you're not doing that engagement now, then when you go renew, you're going to have a skeleton crew of members. Um, and you just you're just going to spiral your way into oblivion. Mm -hmm. So absolutely. And I mean, right, the other part of it is if they lose their, what little relevance they currently have and what little real estate they currently occupy on the Alberta political spectrum and they cede the center to the left flank of the conservatives and the right flank of the new Democrats, um, it's really hard to get back in there. I mean, once you get muscled out of there, you're, you're out of there. So they're going to have to work really hard to, first of all, establish... Uh, value for membership with their members and then to establish with the voting public that this is a place where you can legitimately put your vote and we will advocate for you here is what we believe and we're not just doing this busy work uh, one year before the next provincial election we've been doing it the whole time that's right so the last thing we want to talk about here is bags of money or rather, big envelopes, envelopes. Full of money. Yeah, great, great big envelopes. Um, you know, getting a money transfer at a bank and then walking over and giving the money to somebody. Um, now, this seems, again, I'm not a lawyer, but this seems like maybe ethically questionable behavior. Well, and 
you know, this this has been my my issue with with some of the provincial conservatives attacking some of the federal liberals, and there's kind of a level of the you know there's there's these these issues right now that came from the leadership election. Now, we've said this before. People will try to pin this on Kenny. The mm -hmm. likelihood of that happening it approaches zero. Yes. Um, you know, it just Kenny is frankly too smart to to be directly involved with that. He's uh, too smart, and every single member of that party will fall on their sword and say it was their idea. They will play the full-on "I am Spartacus." So, so you know, if if we want to differentiate, you know, you've got a sitting prime minister versus a failed leadership candidate. But the fact is they're sitting are... premier. Don't get ahead of yourself. Oh, I'm, I'm talking about Callaway. Right, but sitting premier is Jason Kenney. That's right, but but in terms of, of who who had the ethical violation effect. Ah, yes. Right, um, right. so like, as I said, there, there are people within the Conservative Party attacking the federal liberals for the ethical violation uh, and really not looking at their own house you know, the differentiating, differentiating factor is the fact that it is a sitting prime minister versus a failed leadership candidate, uh, theoretically, you know, and maybe um, a sitting premier, although, although again, pinning it on him is impossible. pretty much impossible. Yeah. Um, and we're not, we're even, not, to even be if clear, it were true. Yeah, yeah, to be clear, we're not we're, saying we're it not is saying, true. Yeah, we're not saying it is. Um, but, but, you know, at the same time, it is your own house. Right? This did happen under the guise of the United Conservative Party. So all that analysis done, what are we actually talking about? Let's assume we've got a listener who's been living under a rock for the last little sure. bit. So we've talked about this on a few different podcasts. That, so there was the kamikaze candidate, as, as has been nicknamed. Uh, Jeff Calloway was one of the three leadership candidates for the United Conservative Party. For, <laughs> sorry, I'm getting a correction here. Uh, four, among our weaponry. Um, so, so the the four leadership candidates. Now, Callaway uh, was actively attacking Brian Jean, uh, as was as was uh, Jason Kenney, of course, because Brian Jean was the former leader and the most likely to unseat or to to keep Jason Kenney out of out of that role. Uh, Callaway seemed to be just attacking. Brian Jean and and really focusing nowhere else. Um, just to to reiterate, uh, Joey, you had a tweet during the conservative campaign that it looked like Callaway was just doing this to to be a second attack on Brian Jean. So this isn't something that was necessarily made up by the media, you know, a year later. But effectively, what has happened is it looks like, um, well. With, with with the latest piece, um, basically money was given to Callaway in an effort to circumvent election financing laws. Mainly and it that, was at the last possible moment to keep him in the race because if he did not make a five hundred or uh, sorry a fifty seven thousand dollar payment to the Conservative Party on September twelfth, he would be out of the race. That's right. So so it was it was a last ditch effort. Um, so anyways, the envelopes full of money effectively are, are kind of the smoking gun right now. Um, so that's the piece that, that yes, there were, 
envelopes full of money. There was um, there was talk about somebody who received a transfer from a company um, into their personal bank account and walked it over in the same bank to the Callaway campaign. Um, so effectively, it the the piece what it looks like is that uh, there were there were companies and other potential external entities that had good reason to keep Callaway in the race and so transferred significant portions of money to circumvent election finance law in order to keep him in the conservative race and continue to attack Brian Jean. Right, and the uh, the allegation is that this is unlawful for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, the large, or the corporation that was the originator of the money transfer is a prohibited entity and uh, corporations cannot contribute uh, to political races in, under Alberta law. Uh, secondly, the allegation is then further, and I say allegation uh, because these were the findings of the elections commissioner, but they have not been upheld by a court. Correct. Um, and the reason this is in the news again is because Jeff Calloway and his campaign are in fact appealing the decision to the court. So there will ultimately be a finding of what did or did not happen. But for now, these are the allegations that were put forward uh, by the elections commissioner in justifying the fines and penalties that were levied against uh, Calloway, the campaign, and his contributors. But the, the second point was that then this money was taken this cash was handed to individuals who then immediately handed it back to the campaign and said, here's my $2,000 donation. Here's my $2,000 donation to your campaign. Here's my $2,000 donation to your campaign. And the um, elections commissioner pointed out that the amount of organization and attention to detail that it took in order to make that happen shows very clearly that the campaign understood what the law was and was going to great lengths to get around it, but ultimately unsuccessful lengths because somebody started singing like a canary. And it should be noted that uh, the Callaway campaign aren't the only ones who have received fines for this from the elections commissioner. The individuals involved with this have also been fined for, for effective, effectively fraud. Right? right, because uh, taking money that isn't yours to use for a political campaign is in violation of elections acts. So, so it, it's not just the campaign; it is the individuals who contributed. Now, you know, there's there's kind of one one wondering, well, why would somebody do that? Like, you know, you know, you know, there must be something in the back of your mind going. Hmm, this seems really weird that I have to go through this process or that they're they're having me do this and I, and I think it's important to, to understand that you know to a degree uh, a number of people are being told that you know like everybody does this or you know like there, there's going to be that level of this is or a belief that this is common and that's that's an accurate statement in my time in conservative politics, I can tell you there is an actual term that I've heard from multiple people who were highly placed in various campaigns and parties, and the term was brown envelope politics, right? And uh, a couple examples of brown envelope politics, one we're talking about right now, another one is um, Thomas Lukasik 
is running for the leadership of the Progressive Conservative Party. And suddenly, a report outlining his cell phone charges when he was on a trip to Europe is slipped under a door in a brown envelope, and now it's being discussed in the public, and now Thomas Lukasik has egg on his face, and he loses that leadership race. Brown envelope politics is the way things are done in the back rooms. And so for the number of times that people are caught actually doing this, it's almost as though it's worth the risk. Because if you don't get caught, maybe promises are made. Maybe somebody says, hey, you know what? We're going to be filling boards and commissions. Or maybe somebody says, hey, you know what? Um, your kid's still looking for a job, right? I need a constituency assistant. I mean, politics is a dirty, greasy game. It is not sunshine and rainbows as much as I wish it were. And so why would somebody do this? It's because the likelihood of them getting caught versus the likelihood of the benefit to having somebody in power owing you a significant favor is almost worth it to some people. Kirk. So we've talked about federal politics. We've talked about provincial politics. We even talked a little bit about Broadway. We are, as we said, 59 days or less away <laughs> from the federal election as of the recording of this podcast. Do you have some words of wisdom for a federal candidate who may be listening to this podcast right now? Yeah. So one thing that needs to happen early in an electoral period and when the writs dropped is candidates have to become official candidates, right? You're not, you're not a candidate just because you say you are. Uh, in the federal arena, at least when I ran, it was 100 signatures that you needed of people who lived in the riding. I believe it's still that. Um, so th this is a note for both candidates and for the electorate. Um, just because you sign somebody's nomination papers does not mean that you're going to vote for them. And, you know, if you truly believe that anybody should be able to run in a democracy and, and people should be able to, to run freely, you know, if somebody comes to your door and asks for a signature, give them a signature. And, and I will put this out there. Anybody who is in my writing, um, or, and I'm sure Joey is the same way. Like if, if, if you need a signature on one of those those documents, yeah, come on by. Like, I'll I'll sign any candidate who who drops by who who wants my signature. And and so for the candidate side, you know, it's a good opportunity to door knock as well, right? To you know, yeah, you can go to everybody who's part of your party, and you can get their signatures and make it really easy. But it is also an opportunity for you to uh, meet the neighbors, right? You you go drop in at at you know. Uh, Joe party member uh, their place and they sign it for you you know head, head for a few doors next door and, and be willing to ask because it's a great way to, to meet neighbors it's a great way to find out uh, kind of where your support might be and uh, you know it's it's what you need to actually run anyways and holy crap do you ever need to knock on those doors anyway I mean you're applying for a job with a hundred thousand constituents at least so knock on those doors Okay, Kirk, so before we leave, folks, I have a very important question to ask you that has nothing to do with Broadway. 
online voting a great idea or the greatest idea? You know, I've I've recently changed my mind on this. Oh, I have. Um, only because now that I'm going to be going for leader of the Alberta party, uh, I am all in favor of online voting. And, uh, you know, if you, if there happens to be 102% going for Kirk Schmidt, you know, that's I'm sure it's just a uh, rounding error. Okay. Uh, Alberta party, actually an early adopter of online voting. I voted online in an Alberta party leadership contest in the mid-2000s. Well, until next time, ladies and gentlemen, uh, please tell your friends about the podcast. Give us a five-star review. Uh, subscribe to us on uh, iTunes and in the uh, uh, Android store. Uh, just, you know, uh, retweet us. Uh, our social media is at the start of the show. Um, we're working on getting an email address, but Kirk needs to figure out how computers work first. What is a computer? It, it connects to the internets, which is a series of tubes. Oh, they have the internet on computers now? They do. So, until next time, I am Joey Oberhofner. I'm Kirk Schmidt. And we are The, the Unelectables. Unelectables.